The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 16 through 32. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing about something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word, which is life and food and breath for us. We ask, oh God, that as we spend these next few moments reflecting on it, that you would open our hearts, that you would fill up our hearts with your love and your grace, and that you would help us to have an encounter with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Good morning, friends. My name is Peter Choi, and um, I'm on staff here at City Church, and occasionally I get to the privilege of preaching, and I'm really excited to be here with you this morning, reflecting on uh, this particular word. A few weeks ago, uh, my family was on a, we were on a uh, road trip in the Pacific Northwest, and um, we were doing a college campus visit. That's, I guess, the season of life we're in. And um, there were student, students, prospective students from all over the country visiting um, and about to go on this tour. And as we were about to begin the tour, the tour guide said, let's take just a moment to introduce all the students. Tell us your name and um, you know, where you're from. And so the students were going around and it uh, came to be uh, Elijah's turn. And Elijah said, uh, my name is Elijah Choi and I'm from San Francisco. And my pronouns are he, him, his. And, um, you know, I wish I wasn't surprised, but I was. Uh, and I was a little proud, too, or really proud, but I was really surprised. Like, surprise was my main emotion in that moment. And he told me afterwards, Dad, you shouldn't have been surprised, right? Uh, and he also gave me permission to share the story. Um, but I wonder if you've had a moment like this in your life where... Someone comes, someone that you think you know pretty well comes along, and, um, and out of their mouth comes words that you don't quite expect. That's what we have in this particular passage. You know, everything that we've learned about Paul has taught us to expect something different from him, from what we have here. Depending on how you count, Paul has preached about three or four times in the book of Acts so far. And they've basically followed the same template, looking back on Old Testament prophecies to prove why Jesus, the Messiah, had to die and rise again. But here in today's passage, in the Areopagus, the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world, his words are different. He goes off script and he preaches a wholly uncharacteristic message for someone like him. Now, the common explanation is that Paul was contextualizing, big fancy word, contextualizing his message so that it would be easier for his hearers to understand what he was saying. He modified how he preached so that he could be more easily understood, all well and good. But the emphasis on the style of his communication and this is what I want to argue over the course of um, this message, the emphasis on the style of what he said ought not to distract us from what he actually said, the content of his preaching. Because when we pay careful attention to what he is saying, there are some profound surprises in this message. Now, to be sure, you heard it already, I'm sure, there are the usual expected elements about repentance, which literally means to change one's mind. You know, we have all of this baggage loaded onto this word repentance. But in the Greek, metanoia simply means to change one's mind. So there's that. And, and Paul also talks about the resurrection, which is, of, of course, part of what you would expect in a sermon like this. But Paul also makes a few head-turning statements that if you've been reading along carefully in the book of Acts, appear to come out of nowhere. 
And that's the part I want to highlight for us. And that's the part we ought to reflect on this morning together. Okay, so two surprises. Usually I give you full outline. I'm not going to do that today because it's, they're surprises. Okay, the first surprise is this. Paul says, here standing in front of the Athenians, these pagans, excuse my language, but that's what he would have thought. That's what his religious teaching and tradition would have taught him to think about these people. And the, and the thing that he says, okay, is there's this recognition of common ground. I don't know if you caught this, but Paul basically says, we worship the same God. Now, there's a lot else that we could say about this, right? Because there are problems that Paul has with their theology. But the plain reading of this text tells us that Paul identifies their God with his God. And for traditional interpreters of this text, that creates a problem. You know, people have lost jobs over making a statement like this. A number of years ago, December of 2015, a professor at a Christian college in the Midwest wrote on her social media the following. I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. Now, on the face of it, that might sound like a you know, really sensitive and erudite and kind and generous theological statement that ought to be affirmed and celebrated. Well, if you know the story, all pandem- pandemonium broke loose, and she eventually lost her job. You know, one recent post on a Christian website said this, reflecting on this incident. The Islamic and Christian conceptions of God are fundamentally irreconcilable. In friendships with Muslims, a Christian need not aggressively attack the idea that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, but in practice or in our theological belief system, we ought to have a very clear understanding. Okay? So what they're saying is, you know, don't be a jerk about it. Be nice about it. But don't forget that your God, the Christian God, is completely different from the Muslim God. You know, one scholar writing a commentary on the book of Acts says this, Of course there was no connection between this unknown God and the God whom he would proclaim, that Paul would proclaim. Paul was not suggesting for one moment that they were unconscious worshipers of the true God but was simply looking for a way of raising with them the basic question of all theology. Who is God? So you see what traditional theology says about this particular text. Paul certainly could not have meant what on the face of it he seems very clearly to be saying. So suspect and problematic is what Paul is saying here that some commentators have said, it's very likely that this was not actually what Paul preached. Some commentators say this, that this is some kind of text that was superimposed on the narrative that we find in the book of Acts. But it can't can't have been Paul because because the language, the the words in this text are so un-Pauline. And so we want to write this out of uh, Paul's repertoire of preaching. It's not Paul. 
One commentator says, Diametrically opposing views have been expressed on the question whether Paul did did deliver or indeed could have delivered such a speech. You see, some scholars reckon with the fact that this is clearly what Paul is saying. What Paul, what the speaker named Paul in this text seems to be saying, but it couldn't have been Paul because Paul would never say such a thing. But Paul's meaning is clear. The words of this text are clear, even if it makes some people uncomfortable. Let's, let's look directly at what Paul says. In verse 23, As I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Or to summarize in a slightly different way, Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God that you have been worshiping because that unknown God is actually my God. And I know a lot about this God, so let me tell you about this God. Um, if that sounds too philosophical, let's, let's do a little math. I'm not, I wasn't very good at math in school, but I remember the transitive principle, and it goes something like this. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Okay, some of you are really good at math. I had to look this up, okay? So that's the transitive principle. And what Paul is saying is, the unknown God that you worship is my, is, sorry, the God that you worship is an unknown God, right? A equals B. The unknown God is my God, B equals C. Therefore, the God you worship, A, right, is my God, C. That's clearly what Paul is saying. Now, theologically, this is problematic for lots of traditional Christians because we want to make distinctions. Paul was like this. The reason why this is so surprising that it would come out of Paul's mouth, even scandalous, is that Paul was a person who so fiercely believed in the truth of his religion that he would persecute, not just persecute, but he would kill people who believed differently from him. It's in Acts chapter 8, at the stoning of Stephen, Paul looking upon the scene and giving approval, going around, going around everywhere, persecuting, putting to death Christians who he believed were deviants in their religious beliefs. So this is Paul. Paul saying, Paul having a very binary, very clear understanding and a worldview that says, There's the true religion, which is my religion, and there's the false religion, which is everyone else's religion or everyone who believes differently from me. And and this is such such an important difference that I'm going to go out in the world and persecute and kill people who believe differently from me. Kirsten Powers in her book Saving Grace says this, intellectual hubris makes us think we know more than others. But moral superiority deludes us into, th- into believing that we are better than others. She could have been saying this about the Apostle Paul, at least the younger and earlier version of the Apostle Paul. And I think that part of the reason why this is so scandalous, why this is so difficult for some people to believe about God, is what Paul goes on to say in the rest of the passage, namely this, 
this God that I'm proclaiming to you is not far from any of us. So not only, not only is Paul saying we worship the same God, this God is near unto us. Paul says we live and move and have our being in this God. And this God is so gracious that he does not require we bring our sacrifices, our gold and our silver. This God does not need us to make anything for this God. So generous, so loving, that this God wants to be found by us, understood by us, approached by us. You see, Paul is making, what Paul is saying here makes a rupture. There is a break with tradition. He's saying something different. The Paul of a few years ago, the Paul of a few chapters ago, could never have, would never have said this. That's the first surprise. We worship the same God. And this God is near unto us. You know, the, the one more thing I'll say about this, this first point is some commentators would say part of the reason why this can't have been Paul is because un- until you get to the very end of this preaching, of this sermon, this is such an unchristian text. There's no, there's, there's no specific Christian doctrine in this story, in this sermon. Well, it depends on how you look at it, I suppose. If you believe that God, that we worship as Christians, that this God is so big, that this God is near unto us, and that there are some in this world who worship this God, perhaps by a different name, or perhaps with no name at all. Like, is that a Christian message? I think that's part of the, of the work that Paul is doing here, trying to understand what does it mean that this God I believe in this particular way is revealed to me in a different way. And I'm proclaiming this God with words, with descriptions that are completely foreign to my previous understanding of this God. So that's the first surprise. The second surprise is this. Not just the recognition of a common ground or a common deity, but there's also the recognition of common humanity. And in effect, what Paul is saying in this sermon is, we are all God's children. Now, I realize when you hear these words, it sounds so simple, so maybe so transparent, so obvious as to be meaningless. But bear with me here, because this notion, this, this statement of Paul, we are all God's children, is actually really, really hard. Really hard for people to hear. Now, first, let's see what Paul is saying in verse 26. From one ancestor, God made all nations. And then he goes on to quote Athenian poetry to say, for we too are his offspring. Now, this was a hard teaching for the Athenians, first and foremost. It was hard for his direct audience, the people in front of him, to get this teaching because the Athenians believed that they were a very exceptional people. Okay? The Athenians believed that unlike all the rest of human, human, humankind, the Athenians, they sprung from the soil of their native Attica. So their origin story is, is altogether different from everyone else's. And because of this very unique storyline and this history of the Athenians, they believe 
that they were superior to other people. And so for Paul to come along and say, we are all God's children, it would not necessarily have been good news. Moreover, this was a hard teaching for Paul. You know, in Paul's worldview, in his religious belief system, he did believe when it's something, a fancy word here, but monogenesis. That all of humankind came from one creation story. That would have been what Paul believed. Okay? So in theory, in, in his theology, that is the core doctrine. And at the same time, Paul believed that there were God's chosen people and everyone outside of it, Gentiles. And Gentiles had lost access to God. Gentiles were far from God. And there was an ongoing debate in his religious tradition and and belief system about what it meant to love and to include Gentiles. But Paul's interpretation on this particular point was that if if you are not a person who has committed your life to God in the ways that his belief system dictated, then you were a Gentile who was abandoned by God, forsaken by God, far from God. And so for Paul to enter into the Areopagus and say, we are all God's children, would have been a hard thing for Paul to say. Again, I mean, this is the kind of moment in which Paul, from a few chapters ago, would have wanted to just wipe out these people and say, there's something wrong with you, so profoundly wrong with you, that you don't even deserve to live let alone have me speak words of encouragement about God to you. And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, this is a hard teaching for us. It's a hard teaching for us because we would like to say, yes, all people are created equal. We would like to say that God loves everyone, that we are all God's children. But friends, do you know that we still live in a country where based on the color of your skin, you might be persecuted. You might be killed. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about in our, our conversation, our faith and justice conversation, talking about Christianity, the U.S. empire, and racism. Because they're all wrapped up together. They're entangled in ways that's mutually reinforcing of one another. This is a hard teaching for us. On the face of it, of course, we want to say, yes, it's true, we are all God's children. But functionally, Experientially, we, we live in a world that, that believes a very different word about people, that we're not all the same, that some people are superior and others are inferior. This is a hard teaching for us, and it reminds me of um, an episode in the life of the biblical character Elijah, who uh, in 1 Kings 18 and 19, it's a fascinating um, episode in his life, where he has one of the climactic moments of triumph and victory in his life. And so he's on Mount Carmel, and, he's, and he asks King Ahab, can you gather all the people of Israel? Because I, I'm going to have a showdown with you and all of your false prophets of Baal and Asherah, and we're going to settle this question once and for all. And on Mount Carmel, what happens is, long story short, Elijah prays down fire from heaven, and he kills all the prophets of Baal. He kills all the prophets of Asherah. And it sounds like, or it seems like, he has this moment of breakthrough. And then very quickly what happens over the course of chapter 19, right after that climactic moment of triumph, we find Elijah in a moment of suicidal despair. And uh, in 
chapter 3, it says he ran for his life. And in, and sorry, in verse 3, it says he ran for his life. And then in verse 4, it says um, he prayed to God to take away his life. Elijah can't make up his mind. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this, again, commentators would say these texts or these chapters can't belong to each other because on the one hand in chapter 18, Mount Karma, this moment of great triumph and victory, and then you have Elijah in the throes of despair. How is that possible? How is that possible for someone to be so high to all of a sudden in just a few verses be so low? And that's a puzzle. It's a puzzle for us to figure out. One of the things that we discover in Elijah's speech to God, just a few verses down, and you really get a sense of, okay, here's what's happening for Elijah. And what Elijah basically says is, God, I have been zealous for you, and I'm the only one left. And then he repeats that exact same speech without changing a single word just a few moments later. God, I have been zealous for you. And I am the only one left. Friends, have you ever been in a moment in your life where you felt like you were completely alone? Like no one else could understand. No one else could come alongside of you. Imagine how much more fatal that moment is when you believe that you have been zealous for God. That you have been tirelessly following after God. Trying to do what God was asking of you. That's the moment for Elijah. And in that moment, realizing he's all alone. You know what God's antidote to that is? A few verses later, God comes along and says, I want you to anoint this person king over Aram. I want you to appoint this, anoint this person king over Israel. And then I want you to anoint your successor. And then the last thing God says is, and still there are, I have reserved 7,000 whose knees have not bowed to Baal. And what God is basically saying, I mean, two things God is saying. Number one is, um, I want you to anoint and appoint your successors because what I want you to realize is that long after you're gone from the scene, my work will continue. And there will be people who carry on that work. Okay? So um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, there's there's an entire community of people. 7,000. Elijah, you are not the only one left. You are not alone in this. There's a, there's a call to recognize the common humanity and the faithfulness of people that he belongs to, his community for Elijah. Um, you know, it reminds me of what Cole Arthur Riley says in our beautiful book, This Your Flesh. Let me read it for you. Some theologies say it is not an individual, but a collective people who bear the image of God. I quite like this, she says, because it means we need a diversity of people to reflect God more fully. Anything less, and the image becomes pixelated and grainy, still beautiful, but lacking clarity. If God really is three parts in one, like they say, it means that God's wholeness is in a multitude. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Isn't that a statement that runs counter to so many religious systems that say we have got the right answers? We have, we have the right prescription for how one ought to live their lives in faithfulness to this God. Instead, there's this vision of there's wisdom everywhere. There's wisdom all around us. There are people seeking God, the face of God 
who are able to understand, who are able to apprehend characteristics of God, and there's wisdom that we can glean and learn from these other places. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we are all God's people. We come from one ancestor. God made us, and this gracious God wants to be known by you. Yes, yes, I'm calling you to repent. Yes, I'm calling you to change your mind about this. Hear the evidence. Hear the good news of this God and make a decision. That's Paul's message. But do you hear the content of what, God, what Paul is saying about God? We, are all worship, we have all been worshiping the same God. And also, this God is near unto us and we are all God's children. Friends, when all is said and done, what we have in this passage is the Apostle Paul stumbling toward grace straining to work out a, full, a fuller understanding of the good news. You know, it should not be a stretch to say that human characters in Scripture, at any given moment, have an imperfect understanding of God. How could they not, as finite beings, trying to understand an infinite being? And just as we should not enshrine the Paul of chapter 8, when he was killing and, murder, and, and persecuting uh, people, we should also not divinize, absolutize, heroicize the Paul of chapter 17 just because he seems to be preaching a good sermon. After all, Paul is talking about a God he doesn't completely understand, a God he is still learning about. When we listen to this story and Paul's words in this way, we learn that a relationship with Jesus is an ever-expanding and unpredictable journey filled with surprises. And this is the good news in this text, in this sermon of Paul, that God is near unto us, and we are all, every one of us in here and every one of us out there, we are all God's children. Friends, this is the good news. I hope you are so astonished by this news. I hope you are knocked off your seats. Metaphorically, of course. I hope, I hope that this news takes your breath away. I hope you're floored. I hope you barely make it out those doors today because you're so smitten by the gracious news that you're hearing that God is near unto us, all of us. And we are all, all of us, God's children. Let us pray. God, Oh, that your people, that Christians would be known by these beliefs. That God, you are near unto all of us and that we are all God's children. Oh, that we would be so overtaken with news of your love, with news that we belong to your family, with news that you have, you have outstretched your arms to love us and to embrace us. Help us to hear these words. Help us to believe these words. And help us to live these words today and all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.